0: You're Untold, the first podcast series that takes us behind the scenes of the Maison Dior and its unique savoir-faire, an immersion into the fascinating world of its creator and his innermost inspirations. Episode 2, And Women Created Dior Christian Dior brought magic and elegance to women all over the world, but few of them held a special place in his closely guarded heart, the wellspring of his inspiration, by diving into the personal story of the designer's life, we will discover the women who set the path for him and became the house's trailblazers. Enjoy learning about the various women who made up this constellation of stars and enabled the Maison Dior to shine. 1919, Granville. France is emerging from the Great War and this town in Normandy has organized a charity fair to raise money for the soldiers. Smiling families, dressed in their Sunday best, stroll leisurely among flower-bedecked stalls. All around, fairgoers are taking potshots in an effigy of the Kaiser at the shooting range, are fishing for wooden ducks, or gaily spinning the Wheel of Fortune. The country is picking itself up again after the years of darkness, and everyone desperately aches for a better future. A tall, slender boy with a wise face stands out from the crowd. He is dressed in bohemian garb for the day. His name is Christian Dior. He is 14 years old, and today, the fair's fortune teller has enlisted his help. The basket tied around his neck with ribbons holds lucky charms that he is selling to those seeking to ward off misfortune. As evening falls and the pleasure seekers disperse, he returns to the clairvoyance caravan. Climbing its few steps, he opens the door to a mysterious shadowy interior, lit only by the flickering light of candelabras. The figure of a bohemian woman can just about be made out in a chiaroscuro among the billowing incense. With a lined face and cold, darkened eyes, this ageless woman sits in front of her card table, a scarf tied around her head and a shawl over her shoulders. To thank him for his services, the soothsayer offers to tell the young man's future by reading his palm. Young Christian stretches out his hand above her crystal ball and tarot deck. You will find yourself without money, the fortune teller tells him, while examining the lines of his hand. But women will bring you luck, and through them, you will achieve great success. His heart pounding, Christian gently closes his hand as if it contains the most precious of treasures. It is night as he makes his way back to the family villa, Les Roms, high above the town on the cliffs, facing out over the English Channel. Christian Dior looks up at the twinkling heavens. Now he knows that women will come into his life, like a constellation of stars, and that he must let himself be guided by their lights to fulfill his destiny. He also trusts that fate will send him signs along the way, and he will always call upon these intuitive women to interpret them. Throughout his life, Christian Dior would put his faith in clairvoyance. In adulthood, he sought twice weekly readings with his favorite fortune teller, Madame de La and drew great comfort from her support, both in matters of the heart and for important career decisions. Madeline, his beloved mother. The lodestar of Christian Dior's life is named Madeline. Elegant, slender, always graceful. This well-to-do woman has 5 children with her industrialist husband, Maurice Dior, and raises them with discipline Christian is the second child, and the one who assists her with her life's work creating an English country garden in the weather-beaten grounds of Les Roms. Over time, despite the gusting winds and intemperate climate, Madeline Dior manages to plant geraniums, roses, and jasmine that blossom under her green fingers like exotic plants, despite the hostile elements. Christian is always at her side, absorbing his mother's deep love of flowers and learning the virtues of patience. The Granville Garden is an expression of instinct and passion, a celebration of the bonds between mother and son and a feminine flair. Throughout his life, the artist will return to this intimate experience time and time again. The origins of his designs are here The corollas of the flowers foreshadow his billowing dresses. Their scents murmur the secret of his perfumes. Recalling Les Roms in Granville, Christian Dior famously said, I have the sweetest and most wonderful memories of it. What can I say? My life, my style, I owe almost everything to its location and its architecture. His tastes and affinities are further honed in Paris later on, where his mother, who in his eyes will always epitomize the spirit and elegance of the Belle Epoque, introduces him to the refined craftsmanship of couturiers, florists, and artisans. When decorating their apartment in the Paris Quartier of La Muette, Madeleine Dior opts for a Neo-Louis XVI style. This opens the door to French neoclassicism, a door that Christian Dior will never close again. In these ways and many others, his vision and aesthetics are colored by his love for his mother, by the hours spent by her side, browsing the boutiques of Paris, attending tending to the most beautiful flowers in their Granville paradise. February 12, 1947. Paris is in the grip of a cold snap, but undaunted, the capital's most elegant women hurry to 30 Avenue Montaigne and rush to the entrance of the Maison Dior, which is about to present its first ever collection. Seeing those 98 dresses on this winter's day sends a seismic shock through the audience. They are a revelation with their wasp style waists, high busts, softly rounded shoulders, and low hems that hide the legs. They turn all the rules of fashion upside down. Christian Dior has redefined the elegant woman's silhouette for years to come. The couturier is consigning ration books to the past and hastening in a new era boldly embracing extravagant, frivolous designs that anticipate the boom of the post-World War II years. The new look has arrived, and Christian Dior is catapulted to international stardom overnight. As these women in their hats and furs climb the stairs at 30 Avenue Montaigne, the décor is made up of magnificent floral bouquets cloud of unfamiliar scents envelops them as they stream into the huge white and pearl grey reception room, where hostesses spray their wrists with the mysterious floral fragrance that perfumes the air. This is the moment when the celebrity guests and fashionistas of the day first encounter Miss Dior. France's everyday women will discover it a few months later, at Christmas and embrace it forever. Christian Dior had asked his perfumer, Paul Vachy, to create a scent that smells like love and springtime, evoking the gust of freedom that has been sweeping across France since the liberation. A perfume born of a typical evening in Provence with the air lit up by fireflies and also inspired by the roses in the garden of Christian's childhood home in Granville a perfume named in honor of the designer's beloved sister and her daredevil spirit. Catherine, his heroic sister. If one can liken Christian Dior's childhood to a treasure island, it's because the other inhabitant of this magical land is Jeannette. She's the youngest child, born 12 years after him and at a time when he's about to enter adolescence she draws him back to a time of innocence when she appears among the groves in Granville everyone else fades into the background of all the flower women that stir the designer's imagination Jeannette is the spirited bold and brave one the one who isn't afraid to upset the established order and in doing so propels him in life. When their father goes bankrupt in the Great Depression, Jeannette follows Christian to the south of France and grows vegetables in their garden to keep them afloat. Then the Second World War breaks out, and his sister, who now prefers to be called by her third Christian name, Catherine, joins the Resistance. Under the alias Caro, she's a member of the F2 network, passing information about German troop movements to London and hosting clandestine meetings in Christian's Paris flat on Rue Royale. July 6, 1944 and it's a fine day in Place du Trocadéro. Catherine is here to meet with a fellow resistance fighter, but instead she is met by Gestapo officers and arrested. The young woman is taken away as darkness falls and is eventually departed to Ravensbrück's concentration camp. Christian Dior hears no news from his sister for a year. He is scared to death. He clings onto the only hope he has. Several fortune tellers' predictions, including that of Madame Dulaye, that she will return. Paris! Paris outragé! Paris brisé! Paris martyrisé! Mais Paris libéré! April 1945. The telephone rings in the middle of the night. Christian Dior answers and is told that Catherine is still alive. His beloved sister will be back in Paris within a month. When she arrives, Christian can't hold back his tears of joy. Catherine is a national heroine in France. And to her big brother, she's the most fearless woman alive. She's an inspiration to him. Despite her remarkable destiny, receiving the Croix de Guerre 1939 to 45, with and then the Legion of Honor, France's highest civilian award, the unassuming sister continues to share Christian's love of flowers. She becomes a flower wholesaler in the bustling Les Market, when Paris finally comes back to life following the liberation. And eventually, she moves to Provence to live on the Domaine de Naïsse near Grasse. Here in this peaceful haven, she will devote her life to growing flowers. Jasmine and Centifolia rose, selling her harvest to perfumers in Grasse, the town so dear to her heart. It was to this sister that Christian Dior had dedicated his first fragrance a few years earlier. In 1947, during a meeting with his colleagues, he'd been trying to come up with a name for this first perfume. When Catherine suddenly appeared in the hallway at 30 Avenue Montaigne, the couturier's muse, Mita Bricard, exclaimed, "Oh look, here's Miss Dior." On the spot, they agreed to name the scent after the designer's beloved sister. It was right then and there that Mita determined the fate of this soon-to-be iconic fragrance. Raymond Marguerite Suzanne mita his sophisticated female commanding staff. With the 1950s underway in a liberated Paris, Saint-Germain-des-Prés is pulsing with a new joie de vivre as intellectuals, artists, and bohemians reinvent the old ways of living, loving, and thinking. Christian Dior is happy and energized, To build the fashion house he envisages, he has already gathered four exceptional women around him to make up his commanding staff. These are passionate and talented women who, through their character and their unfailing loyalty to Christian, will become surrogates for him and forge the house's destiny at his side. First, there is Raymond Zeneker, director of his design studio. She compliments him, as he likes to say, She's a confidant and friend, reassuring him and shielding him from setbacks. Raymond acts as a buffer between his sensitive nature and the outside world. It is she who provides reason to his fantasy, order to his imagination, discipline to his freedom. The second is Marguerite Carré, Madame Marguerite, his Marguerite, Lady Couture herself an exacting, practical woman. She is the bridge between his inspiration and the ateliers where his designs are fashioned into dream dresses. With her extraordinary technical skills, her magic fingers, and her demanding, obstinate nature, Madame Marguerite fills Christian with the incomparable sense of being able to believe in the impossible. The third woman is Suzanne Luling, a childhood friend of Christians from Granville, who is the director of trunk shows, sales, and PR. She's the one who never doubted his success. He admires her boundless energy, her unfailing good humor, and her festive spirit. She has an incredibly dynamic nature, which is such a powerful force that she draws everyone else to her, too. The fourth figure in Dior's female commanding staff is Mizza Bricard, a woman with a feline-like beauty, who makes elegance her sole raison d'être. In the early 1950s, Mita Bricard is one of the women at the heart of Christian Dior's tight-knit entourage. With Dior's glamorous designs taking the world by storm, Mita is the couturier's inspiration, his muse. Her keen eye stops him from making the slightest misstep, and she pushes his intuitions beyond their limits. Mitsa is a compelling woman who cultivates a heightened femininity. Christian had admired her talent when she was styling the Molina collections, and four years earlier, had sought her out to come and work with him. It was decided that Mica Bricard would join Dior as the head of millinery. Christian Dior is enthralled with this woman who epitomizes the style of femininity he has revered since boyhood, with her fur stools and sophisticated mannerisms straight out of a Giovanni Boldini portrait. Her eclectic influences are drawn from art history, and she's just as likely to channel the art nouveau from her youth to medieval Flemish fashion, which she admires for its austerely cut and oversized hats. Physically speaking, she is a glamorous, dark-haired woman with a feline-like elegance that cultivates a certain eccentricity. At Dior, she often wears a white blouse with nothing underneath, with her rivers of pearls or diamonds dripping down her neck and a silk scarf tied around her waist. A liberated theatrical woman, Mitza will eulogize the elegance of the Carmelites while dressing in leopard print from head to toe. With her Nefertiti-like profile, nonchalant manner, and admittable elegance, Mica is truly one of a kind. She has only one religion, fashion, and she is its unsaleable expert. Inflexible in her standards, Madame Bricard's instinctive choice is always the most acute expression of that indefinable perhaps slightly outdated thing called chic, wrote Christian Dior. Her elegance is the height of a cosmopolitan style. I thought that her singular nature and prodigious excesses would provide a wonderful balance to the staid temperament I inherited from my roots in Normandy. Christian is inspired by her style when he designs the jungle print for his 1947 spring-slash-summer collection. Many decades later, her presence is still felt in the house's silk scarves, which creative director of women's hot couture ready-to-wear an accessories collection for the House of Dior, Maria Grazia Curie, named Mizza in homage to the little silk muslin scarf the muse always wore around her wrist. Francois Demachi, Dior perfumer creator, pays his own tribute to this woman Christian admired so much by creating a perfume with her name. Mitza is a flamboyant amber scent, somewhere between the Dior rose that Christian was so fond of and the Oriental notes that epitomize his Leonine muse with an extravagant personality. You're asking whether the centifolia rose could be a woman? I think, rather, it could be a lot of women and I'm certainly not the first to say so. Poets throughout the ages have sung its praises, starting with Pierre de Ronsard. He looked at a flowering rose and saw a likeness, at least, or rather an allegory to womanhood. It's a way a rose is plucked that makes it so. Lucky, France, Sylvie, René, Ala, and Victoire. The Cabin Fairies. Christian Dior, the Cabin, the model's dressing room, is a whole world in itself, like a private box at the theater. It is furnished with armchairs, lamps, and mirrors. In his eyes, it could only be inhabited by fairies. And each one of these heavenly creatures is a facet of an ideal image he has in his mind for his clients. There are 12 fitting models of varying silhouettes, complexions, and ages who bring this inner sanctum to life. It is the very diversity of their personalities that sparks the mysterious alchemy of the Maison Dior's style and atmosphere. Christian Dior's lineup of fitting models is a bit unusual. He believes that models are born, not made so he is happy to give any young woman the chance to model his designs. He has a special fondness for each of them, which brings his thoughts to life and seeps into his designs. There is Lequipe, a vivacious, theatrical woman with a flair for striking dramatic couture poses, and based on her moods, could breathe new life into the dresses. Then there's France, the French woman, Christian confesses that she is the perfect embodiment of French beauty. Firstly, because she's very tall, slender, and blonde. The designer tells himself that as she's such a typical Parisian, the people who admire her are also, to a certain extent, salting his country. And Sylvie, she's the one he took on when she was just a child. Throughout her modeling career, she never lost that girlish charm dark-haired with an impish twinkle in her eyes, nor her hourglass figure. Then there's Renée, the ideal woman. There's no doubt that she's the absolute embodiment of perfection. Every dress she wears seems to sparkle. Such is the exquisite symbiosis between her proportions and the designer's inspiration. Her private nature and good taste incarnate a certain notion of chic. And Allah, she's the mysterious woman. She had shown up with a friend as a replacement, but as soon as Christian Dior caught sight of her, he begged the director of the cabin to keep her. The daughter of a Russian mother and a Kazakh father, Allah has striking Asian features and brings a new kind of sophistication to the runway. Christian Dior always considered her to be the very epitome of a natural born model. Finally, there's Victoire, the woman with a rebellious streak, his most revolutionary model. In spring of 1953, a girl pushes open the Maison Dior's doors with all the insouciance of an 18 year old. She's a beautiful brunette named Jeanne and she wants to be a model. Christian Dior welcomes her to his office and doesn't even bother to read the letter of recommendation she has brought from the editor-in-chief of Vogue magazine. He's completely bowled over by the girl's sassy allure, which brings to mind the hip young people dancing the night away to the rhythms of jazz in the smoky cellars of Saint-Germain-des-Prés. Her body doesn't fit the mold of that of a traditional model, She's petite with a tiny waist, big bust, and short hair, but her round face lights up with an irresistible smile that radiates an extraordinary sensuality. Christian Dior signs her up there and then. The girl tells him her name, but Christian Dior declares, well, we shall call you Victoire, Victoire's arrival feels like a bomb going off. The other models hate this newcomer, who threatens to overshadow them with her unorthodox style. When she first appears in public, the clients are abashed and baffled that the house is employed. A model who doesn't have a good body and doesn't know how to walk. They insult her, calling her scandalous, the little brat, the troublemaker. But Christian Dior doesn't sway under this criticism. He knows victoire will become his supermodel and that what the critics are actually objecting to is how she perfectly epitomizes the youth of her day she heralds a new era my model brings the life of my dresses christian dior likes to say and i want my dresses to be happy for him each dior dress takes on its full meaning when the models stand poised ready to reveal the look under the showroom's spotlight. To champion and showcase his designs, Christian Dior will always prefer, as he puts it, a model who became a woman, rather than a woman who became a model. He's interested in models with character. When they're in front of an audience, they smile, sachet and twirl, swishing the fabrics and injecting life into the dress they're wearing. The designer was right about Victoire. When his second collection was shown, she was the only one anyone noticed. People claimed I'd transformed her, wrote Dior, whereas in fact, it was they who had changed. They'd suddenly woken up to Victoire's slightly acerbic charm and realized how attractive it is. From then on, they were all fighting over her. Victoire would make the headlines in all the papers and join the international jet set, never abandoning her trademark look of black-penciled eyes. In those days, it was so hectic in the models' dressing room, and models rarely wore makeup because there were no makeup artists. Victoire, ever the nonconformist, drew black rings not only around her eyes, but also around her lips. The first time she sported this look while modeling in front of Christian Dior, she understood from the designer's silence that he approved. Right until the end, the designer and his top model remain inseparable. Victoire was Christian Dior's last guiding light in his life. She's the one who, with her modern spirit, helped propel him beyond his wildest dreams and oriented his designs toward the future, where they will conquer the galaxy. Christian Dior's vision, inspired by the beauty, intelligence, and courage of women, has never ceased to radiate outwards across the world. The seeds first sown in the garden at Granville have brought forth generations of flower women who took destiny into their own hands. Every designer at Dior, whether at the helm of fashion or fragrance, has taken inspiration from the windswept landscape by the sea and the gardens nurtured by the hands of Madeleine, Catherine, and Christian. François Demachy habitually wanders among the flowerbeds, permeated with memories, in the search of a unique fragrance. In 2016, the mason Dior chose Maria Grazia Curie, as its first female creative director. She soon staked out her feminist credo, and after diving into the family's history, she produced a collection called Catherine's Garden in 2019, a paean to the spirit of female creativity that watches over the house's designs. Christian Dior's stars were first revealed to him by a fortune teller in 1919, and to this day, they continue to guide those through whom his art and style live on.